from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good. This episode features an historically important 2011 debate at Tufts University between the two most significant historians of the post-World War II heroin traffic. The first debater is Professor Peter Dale Scott, founder of Parapolitics and Deep Politics, as well as the author of The War Conspiracy, Coming to Jakarta, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Drugs, Oil, and War, The Road to 9-11, American War Machine, and The American Deep State. The second participant is Professor Alfred McCoy, author of The Politics of Heroin, now in its third edition. I'd like to thank the A-Info's radio project for making the recording public, Jerry Meldon for courageously organizing and moderating the event, and Stan Robinson for recording it. In working with this material, a number of fascinating angles about these events have emerged in my mind. Essentially, I think that it is possible that McCoy's trajectory may have been influenced by Peter in ways that neither man appreciated at the time. I'll try and lay out the chronology here. First, Peter was working on this CIA Air America heroin story in the time leading up to his September 1970 submission to Ramparts Magazine, the article that the CIA stole and which would have been the first major expose of their nefarious operations in Southeast Asia. In my estimation, this would have been a scandal exceeding the famous Ramparts expose, which detailed how the CIA had been illegally backing all sorts of student groups and other elements of U.S. civil society. With Peter's Ramparts story scuttled by the agency, the material would not make it into the press until a March 1972 Earth magazine cover story, which also included an Allen Ginsberg poem on the subject entitled CIA Dope Calypso by Allen Ginsberg for Peter Dale Scott. In 1970, Peter Dale Scott also signed a contract with Bob's Merrill to publish his superb book, The War Conspiracy, which contained some chapters on the CIA Air America heroin traffic. So in the fall of 1970, Peter had signed this book contract and submitted an article on the CIA heroin trafficking operations to Ramparts Magazine. This is where McCoy, then a grad student at Yale, enters the story. In the fall of 1970, Elizabeth Jacob, McCoy's editor at Harper and Row, suggested that McCoy use his knowledge of Southeast Asian politics to write an historically informed book on the spread of heroin addiction among U.S. soldiers. McCoy would go on to meet Allen Ginsberg at a demonstration where Ginsberg told McCoy that the CIA was deeply involved in the Southeast Asian heroin trade. Presumably, Ginsberg's main source for this information was the work of Peter Dale Scott, hence the poem dedicated to Peter. Right at the time that Nixon was declaring the war on drugs in the summer of 1971, Al McCoy, before journeying to Southeast Asia, stopped to interview legendary CIA figures Lucien Conin and Edward Lansdale in their suburban homes near the CIA's Langley headquarters. McCoy had also been getting some assistance from Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs officer Tom Tripodi, also formerly a CIA man. McCoy would go on to write The Politics of Heroin for Harper and Row. The CIA's Cord Meyer even tried to suppress the book, but this attempt appears to have quote-unquote backfired, as the whole saga made it into Al McCoy's June 30, 1972 article for the New York Review of Books entitled 
a correspondence with the CIA. This ended up really helping Al McCoy's book. It should be noted here that Harper and Rowe and the New York Review of Books are not exactly anti-establishment outfits like Rampart's. Meanwhile, Peter Dell Scott's book, The War Conspiracy, was privished and became extremely difficult to find. On top of that, the publisher, Bob's Merrill, waited to publish the book for the maximum two years allowed by the contract. So to wit, Scott's 1970 article was stolen by the CIA, and it never made it to Ramparts. The material in the article did not see the light of day until 1972. His war conspiracy manuscript was submitted in 1970, but did not see the light of day until 1972. The book was privished on top of being released right as McCoy's book was published with a kind of publicity spectacle that one could not hope to pay for. The punchline for all this is that Peter would go on to discover that the legal counsel for his publisher, Indianapolis-based Bob's Merrill, was none other than retired CIA officer William King Harvey, a notorious right-wing fanatic and one of the most obvious suspects in the JFK assassination. Harvey was the CIA officer who ran the ZR rifle operations to kill Castro, elements of which resurfaced in the milieu around the JFK assassination. Furthermore, Harvey was also implicated by his subordinate at the CIA's Rome station, Mark Wyatt, who said to a French author, apropos of really nothing, I always wondered what Bill Harvey was doing in Dallas in November 1963. I think it was a French author. It may have been an Italian author. But needless to say, it is strange that a character like William Harvey would then go on to represent a small publishing house that was turning out some of the most notable anti-war books in the U.S. at the time. One last thing I want to mention about Peter's work on all this and the CIA's detection and subversion of his work is that it needs to be kept in mind as we think about the events surrounding Watergate. Nixon himself had been backed by these very same opium-connected elements of the China lobby. They helped him to arguably commit treason on the way to winning the White House in 1968. Some of Nixon's troubles were related to the shockwaves caused when he seemingly turned against these elements. He declared war on drugs and used people like G. Gordon Liddy and Hunt, who had been involved in anti-narcotics operations, especially Liddy, uh, to assemble new intelligence and drug enforcement agencies that would be more firmly under White House control. This took him into explosive territory, and we all know how it turned out for him, though we don't know precisely why. Exactly how much Peter's exposure of the CIA's heroin trafficking operations in Southeast Asia impacted Watergate and Scott's and McCoy's respective books is impossible to say. None of this is to denigrate Al McCoy or his judicious landmark study, The Politics of Heroin. It's just to provide for this debate some context to help us navigate the wilderness of mares that is the post-war U.S. empire. So, as homage to the founder of Deep Politics, Peter Dale Scott, and Al McCoy, the author of The Politics of Heroin, this episode is entitled The Deep Politics of Heroin. I'm Jerry Melvin. I'm a 
member of the uh, chemical and biological ed engineering department, professor of chemical engineering, and um, that's my day job. But I'm also a citizen, and this is uh, this is that other side of me. Although I try to combine the two. So um, why why is there a series that's about to begin that's called the American Democracy in Crisis series? Um, well, um, it's to me who uh, can got help with from other people, including Peter, actually, on the title of the series. It, it's, it's not um, an acute series, uh, crisis. It's been there for a long time, but it hasn't always seemed as uh, serious. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, what got me thinking about this was the Wall Street financial meltdown, and then um, all the banks were too big to fail, and Washington did, Washington did what Wall Street wanted, and um, and that includes a Republican president and a Democratic president, and um, so some of the darker aspects of our political system became quite clear to me, at least. And I'm and I don't I, uh, I I'm always trying to figure out how to uh, to spread the word with experts on various subjects, so there's this series that is going to trace uh, the state of democracy and the, uh, the problems that have happened more recently and in the longer run. And now the fact that this, the first talk is a series of, the first panel discussion is about CIA complicity in the directory is not because I thought that was the best place to start, but it was a matter of the availability of the speakers. And, uh, but uh, I hope you'll see that, especially if, if you get the Tufts Daily, I have an op-ed in today's daily uh, where I was desperately trying to explain to people why the subject of the first talk fits in with the rest. But I think you'll see when, when, you, when you hear this talk that it, it's symptomatic of problems in our democracy. And the problems that will be discussed will involve both foreign policy and um, the state of democracy here at home and their interrelation. So let me just briefly, I know I tend to ramble, so let me just briefly tell you about the, uh, the schedule for September, October, it will continue in November. So nine days from now on September 28th, Wednesday, we have Simon Johnson, the former chief economist at the World Bank, who's a professor at the Sloan School and um, is uh, author of co-author of the bestseller, 13 Bankers, and he's got a new book coming out, and his topic is The Next Financial Meltdown. And that's, so that's maybe more to the point of what I've been, of, that you can relate to. And then um, in October, we have Professor Kostas Paniotakis of City University of New York on the global capitalist crisis and the promise of economic democracy. And we, we will get the European perspective, uh, as well as the American, what's going on that you've been reading about, about the crisis in Europe. And, and then we're, we're going to be going back and forth in history because of the scheduling. Jack Beatty is the author of a great book called The Age of Betrayal, about the Gilded Age. 
except if you read it, you have to remind yourself you're reading about something that happened a century ago and not now. And his, his uh, talk is tentatively called The Gilded Ages, The Inverted Constitution and the Politics of Distraction. Um, the Inverted Constitution uh, mainly refers to the fact that after, after uh, the Civil War, with the passage of the 14th Amendment, which was supposed to uh, give rights to freed slaves, it was interpreted by the court system in the United States to mean rights of corporations. And um, Shelley Krimsky, a professor here, an authority on this subject, is going to speak about commercialization of American universities. And then we'll have a, a, a double bill on the Pentagon with two experts. You, 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 you can uh, relate to assassination teams with the killing of Osama bin Laden. And the empire bases, you'd be surprised at how many bases and how much, how many billions of dollars of real estate, et cetera, the Pentagon has around the world. And then we'll talk about part of the reason, one of the principal reasons why much of what I'm talking about probably seems foreign to you is because it's not covered in the mainstream media for the most part. And we'll have Robert Parry, who, for those of you who are old enough to remember Iran-Contra, he was the one who broke the story about Oliver North with the Associated Press, and then he left mainstream journalism when they started censoring him. So, um, about today's talk, I woke up uh, as a graduate student 40 years ago. Uh, it was a nice day. It was the spring. It wasn't the fall. Um, it was supposed to be what I was expecting to be uh, my, gra my, my graduate uh, school education was supposed to be idyllic and happy, but when I in the year that I graduated from, from with my undergraduate degree, first Martin Luther King and then Bobby Kennedy were shot, put a kind of damper on it, and um, and the Vietnam War was going on, and so it it was a very different period, and and we were it wasn't a total shock to to we were ready to to believe anything after those murders. But it still came as a sock to me when I saw the cover of Ramparts magazine, which was a popular muckraking magazine at that time. And on the cover was the picture of the vice president of the country we were investing billions of dollars and lives in, uh, South Vietnam. And it was uh, Marshal Nguyen Cao Ki. And it says, is he the biggest pusher in the world? And it went on to a very long and authoritative article. And, about how uh, the people we were working with, especially the CIA, which was main, the main driving force in getting America involved in Indochina, was uh, working together with corrupt uh, politicians, gangsters, uh, and especially in, in Indochina, uh, opium growers. So this one really threw me for a loop, because uh, I wasn't ready for it, but fortunately the two people who are our speakers tonight yeah, we're uh, in, working on books that were uh, about this subject, and so I benefited from the fact that their books came out. The first by Professor Al McCoy, who's a distinguished professor of history at, at a great history department. The, as far as I remember, that's where William Appleman Williams was at one time. Um, uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he is the... Uh, undisputed world scholar, in fact he just about invented the subject of uh, the politics of heroin and as it applies to uh, intelligence operations in the war in 
Indochina. And actually, this, this is a photograph. The, the man who has it on his head is the poet Allen Ginsberg. He was protesting in August 1972 at the Republican, Republican National Convention. He thought they should read this book. Um, it was a bestseller, but not because they responded to what he was doing. And uh, this book, you could read today, and it's as relevant today, relevant today as it ever was. In fact, um, I forget exactly, but maybe 20 years later, after the first uh, war in Afghanistan involving the United States in the 80s, um, and when, when we recruited uh, Islamic fundamentalists and other jihadists, including Osama bin Laden, to, to uh, fight and uh, oust the Soviets from uh, Afghanistan, uh, just as during the war in, v in Indochina, uh, Southeast Asia became the source of the majority of the, most of, by far most of the heroin that went into the illicit supply. So in the 80s, coincidentally, Afghanistan became the source of all that supply. So uh, Professor McCoy did, an, did us another great favor and he revised his book and he called it The Politics of Heroin because he realized Southeast Asia was not the only place where this was going on and he has a great discussion of our the people we recruited, some of whom were major heroin traffickers. And again today, in the second war in Afghanistan, after 9-11, um, in the last 10 years, uh, after a, a slight dip when the Taliban took over, when we ousted them, um, uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan again set records for heroin production. And actually, this is not very clear. It's called The War Conspiracy, and it's a book by Professor Scott. And he, he, Professor Scott, uh, his specialty is um, figuring out who are the real powers that be or making these decisions. Because one of the things that always troubled me and has troubled me to this day is in whose benefit are these foreign policy decisions being made? I mean, it didn't seem to me like people like me had a vested interest in the war in Indochina or in almost any uh, of these minor skirmishes that uh, have uh, continually and some major skirmishes, wars that last forever. And, uh, and our, we spend the bulk of our uh, budget on the Pentagon. I, I never quite understood why. Who, whose name is this being done? And Professor Scott uh, pinpoints, even as early as 1972, the same within a few weeks of Professor McCoy's coming out, who are the people, including people on Wall Street, who had assumed major uh, senior positions, let's say, in the early CIA, who were making these decisions. And that Wall Street theme came back to me after the financial meltdown about who, who rules who, Washington or Wall Street. I, uh, just, just, just to fill in a few other things, the, I, I realized over time that when, what was going on in Vietnam uh, was horrible, but it was nothing new. And, and in fact, if you go to the origins of the CIA and the people who, who were there from the start, you find out that this man, for example, General Carl Wolf, who was the num uh, SS general seconding in the SS to Heinrich Himmler and responsible for transporting hundreds of thousands of uh, people to Auschwitz to meet their doom, um, 
at, uh, in the last year of the war, he was the head of the occupying forces of Germany in Italy, and uh, the head of the American intelligence agency of wartime, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which became the CIA, based in um, the man burst in Bern, Switzerland, uh, whose, whose name is Alan Dulles, he was negotiating, responding to feelers put out by the Ger German generals to negotiate uh, a surrender before the Russians arrived on the scene, behind Stalin's back. And um, uh, Alan Dulles, was the head of that office who was doing this, was uh, reprimanded by the White House when Roosevelt was still alive and told, told to stop, but he persisted. And um, it even went so far as when the Italian underground, the, who were our allies, we have to remind ourselves, during the war, captured General Wolf. Alan Dulles engineered his rescue. And just to make matters worse, this is probably somebody who, uh, whose name may not be familiar for most people. His name is Walter Ralph. And he was an SS colonel, and uh, he was an interesting person. He was, uh, you might have heard of the mobile gas vans, where uh, people were poisoned to death by, in vans that he, he had come up with a clever idea of, of having the exhaust, exhaust into the interior of vans so that people could be murdered. Uh, it had to be stopped there after a while because getting rid of the bodies and, and the smell was bothersome, but he managed to claim around 100,000 victims before that ended. Uh, he, too, was uh, protected. In fact, Carl Wolf escaped uh, judgment at Nuremberg, and he lived to a ripe old age after spending a, a, a few years in prison. Uh, Walter Ralph never went to prison. He was uh, actually smuggled to South America. And one of the interesting things about that, and there's, there's Alan Dulles, the guy who did that, I'll just jump forward that if in, in the Israeli uh, progressive uh, newspaper Haaretz, there was an article that caught my eye in 2007. In the late 40s, Walter Ralph, SS officer responsible for the murder of at least 100,000 people and wanted by allies as a war criminal, was employed by the Israeli Secret Service. And, and this is an Israeli newspaper reporting this. Instead of bringing him to justice, it paid for his services and helped him escape to South America, just like Adolf Eichmann. And documents of the CIA released over the past several years show that the Americans were aware that Ralph's case was not exceptional. So the CIA and uh, Israeli intelligence were doing similar things back then. And um, just as the, as the end, this is Alan Dulles, the man who was the OSS chief in Bern. Alan Dulles uh, became one of the, uh, either the first, second or the third director of the CIA in uh, around 1952 or three. Uh, he, he eventually, uh, his brother John Parson Dulles was the Secretary of State under uh, Eisenhower, and he, uh, and both of these uh, men were, you know, extreme, well, extreme, were strongly anti-communist, as they said. Um, and uh, Dulles was eventually, you might have heard of the Bay of Pigs invasion when the United the CIA with Cuban exiles uh, arranged an invasion of Cuba that turned out to be a fiasco. Kennedy fired 
Alan Dulles at that point. And um, when Kennedy was shot, Alan Dulles was put on the Warren Commission to investigate things like whether the CIA was involved in the murder of, of JFK. And just the last thing, talking about Wall Street, Professor Scott, uh, one of the most interesting tidbits in his, and it's always in the footnotes. <laughs> if you read his books, you have to read the footnotes. And um, in one of the footnotes, he put a list of the, some of the early people, early leaders of the CIA, really top people in the early 50s. Frank Wisner, head of CIA covert operations, and he, his point here is that they were all, they had a common denominator for most of these people was that they were either Wall Street bankers or Wall Street lawyers. So Wisner worked for the law firm Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn. Um, William Harding Jackson, deputy director of CIA at one point, worked for the same firm and later was on the board of Bankers Trust. Alan Dulles, uh, deputy and later director of the CIA, uh, eventually worked for the prestigious law firm Sullivan and Cromwell and became a partner. Before that, interestingly, and I could go on and on for this, is he, he represented a German bank, its subsidiary, the Schroeder Bank, during, the war, during World War II, he represented the subsidiary of that bank. And um, Murray McConnell, Manufacturers Capital, Wall Street, Deputy Director for Administration, Walter Reed Wolf, National City Bank. Uh, he was actually Vice President, CIA Deputy Director at one point, Louis C. Becker, goes on and on. Dylan Reed, on loan as Deputy Director of Intelligence. So I began to see from reading books, going back to Peter's book after the Wall Street financial meltdown, that there seems to be a continuity of, of, uh, of political power and influence and, and it poses a possible explanation for why these policies don't seem to be serving people like me. So um, without further ado, we're going to go back and try to in, in understand the, uh, that picture of uh, General Nguyen Cao Ki, Vice President of South Vietnam, and um, how could it possibly be that he was one of the biggest heroin pushers in Southeast Asia, and the man who is the world's expert on that and related issues is Professor Al McCoy, one of my heroes. Here's another one, is Professor Scott, uh, Al McCoy of the University of Wisconsin. How do I, thank you for the introduction. How do I exit your screen? Thank you. My topic is the history and analysis of CIA complicity in the global drug trade. Tonight, I want to speak to you about the CIA's long history of ad hoc alliances with drug lords, one key reason why America has become trapped in an endless cycle of drugs and death in Afghanistan, a Sisyphean cycle from which there is no easy end or exit. Now, there are two, if you will, spatial dimensions that serve as the locus, the location for these arm-length alliances. First, a metaphysical covert netherworld inhabited <clears throat> by criminals and clandestine agencies, and second, the mountain rim of Asia. Let me turn first, very briefly, to this covert netherworld. Throughout the Cold War, the CIA used gangsters and warlords on continents across the globe, many of them drug dealers, to fight communism. Both criminals and covert agents share a unique ability to operate beyond the bounds of civil society, off the books, sub rosa. And as denizens of that invisible interstice, 
that I call the covered netherworld, they frequently formed alliances. Second, the, <coughs> the second spatial zone, the Asian mountain rim. In one of history's accidents, the Iron Curtain fell along the Asian opium zone at the start of the Cold War, a zone that stretches for 5,000 miles from Turkey to Thailand. To contain Soviet and communist expansion during the Cold War, the United States mounted covert operations to probe communism's soft southern underbelly. <clears throat> and for the past 60 years, the CIA fought a succession of secret wars along this mountain rim in Burma during the 1950s, Laos during the 1960s, and Afghanistan from the 1980s to the present. In one of history's ironic coincidences, the Iron Curtain has also fallen along Asia's historic opium zone that stretches along that same, same 5,000 miles from Turkey to Thailand, drawing the CIA into ambiguous alliances with the region's highland warlords. These leaders exploited the CIA alliance to become drug lords, expanding opium production and exporting refined heroin. The agency tolerated such trafficking and, when necessary, blocked investigations. Since ruthless drug lords made effective anti-communist allies and heroin profits amplified their power, CIA agents, operating alone, half a world away from home, did not tamper with the requisites of success in such delicate operations. Let's turn to one of the first and most controversial of these incidents, the CIA covert war in Laos during the Vietnam War. In Asia, distance insulated the CIA from the consequences of such complicity. In Laos during the 1960s, the CIA battled communism with a secret army of 30,000 Hmong villagers, tough highlanders whose only cash crop was opium. When Hmong officers loaded opium on the CIA's airline Air America and the Lao army's commander, our ally, opened the world's largest heroin laboratory, the agency was silent. In a secret 1972 report, the CIA's inspector general explained the agency's tolerance of drug trafficking by its local allies. Quote, the past involvement of many of these officers in drugs is well known, yet their goodwill considerably facilitates the military activities of agency-supported irregulars. By 1971, 34%, according to a White House survey, of all U.S. soldiers serving in South Vietnam were heroin addicts, all supplied from laboratories operated by such CI assets. When I went to Laos to investigate the traffic in 1971, the Lao Army commander graciously opened his opium account books for my inspection, but the U.S. mission Stonewall, denying that same Army commander was in any way involved in drugs. In a Hmong village where we were investigating opium shipments on the CIA's Air America, CIA mercenaries ambushed my research team. A CIA operative threatened to murder my Lao interpreter unless I quit my investigation. When my book, The Politics of Heroin, was in press, the head of CIA covert operations pressured my publisher to suppress it, and the CIA's general counsel demanded deletions, excisions. After the book was published and altered, CIA agents in Laos threatened my sources, pressing them to recant and convince the House Foreign Relations Committee that my allegations were baseless. Simultaneously, however, the CIA's inspector general conducted an internal investigation to confirm the substance of my investigation. Amidst all this controversy, all these denials, by 1974, Southeast Asian syndicates were supplying a quarter of the U.S. demand uh, with Golden Triangle heroin. But Asia was too remote for allegations of CIA complicity to pack any political punch, and the issue soon faded, denying the country a chance to censure and correct. But just five years later, in 1979, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and the Sandinistas 
seize Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, prompting two CIA operations with revealing similarities. During the 1980s, the CIA, working through Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence, spent about $3 billion to support the Afghan resistance. At the start of this covert war in 1979, the Afghan opium harvest was only 100 tons of raw opium annually, and this opium was sold in regional markets. There was no heroin production. Within two years, however, the Pakistan-Afghanistan borderlands became the world's top heroin producer, supplying 60% of America's demand. In Pakistan, addicts went from zero in 1979 to 1,200,000 just six years later. Again, CIA assets controlled this heroin trade. As guerrillas seized territory inside Afghanistan, they ordered peasant tax payments in opium. This opium was transported across the border, where Afghan leaders and local dealers operated hundreds of heroin laboratories under the protection of the CIA's ally, Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence. In May of 1990, after a decade of this complicity, as the operation was winding down, the Washington Post reported that a man named Gulbuddin Hekmachar, the CIA's favorite asset, had received over a billion dollars in the USA, was also the region's leading heroin trafficker, operating a dozen labs along the Afghan-Pakistan border. In 1995, the former CIA director of the Afghan operation, a man named Charles Kogan, wrote an article <clears throat> admitting that they had sacrificed the drug war to fight the Cold War, uh, offering a statement that reveals, I think, the agency's realpolitik calculus in dealing with drug lords. Let me quote. Our main mission was to do as much damage as possible to the Soviets. We really didn't have the resources or the time to devote to an investigation of the drug trade. I don't think that, they, that we need to apologize for this. Every situation has its fallout. There was fallout in terms of drugs, yes, but the main objective was accomplished. The Soviets left Afghanistan. Again, distance insulated the CIA from political fallout of its alliances with the drug lords. Once the heroin left Pakistan, Sicilian mafia exported it to the United States, and yes, it's true, Sicilian immigrants, middle-aged couples who migrated to the United States, opened up a chain of pizza parlors from Boston, Massachusetts to Milton, Wisconsin. They distributed the heroines and local gangs sold it on the street. Not surprisingly, most ordinary Americans could not do the complex geopolitical equation between Afghan drug lords, Sicilian mafia, pizza parlors in town like Milton, Wisconsin, and the heroin on their streets. In Central America, however, simple proximity made the political fallout from the CIA's operation explosive. Proximity brought these operations to the attention of Congress. In the late 1980s, a subcommittee under Senator John Kerry, your senator, investigated the Contra cocaine links. His investigators established that four Contra-connected corporations hired by the State Department to fly humanitarian relief goods down to Central America were returning with cocaine as cargo. The DEA, operative, the, DEA the Drug Enforcement Administration operative assigned to Honduras, a man named Mr. Thomas Zapeda, testified that his office had been closed in June 1983 since it was generating intelligence that the local Honduran military was involved in cocaine trafficking, thereby threatening the CIA's relationship with this key frontline force for the Contra War. In effect, agency operations have once again created another enforcement-free zone, just like the Afghan borderlands closed to investigations from outside agencies. In August of 1996, the San Jose Mercury News published an explosive uh, expose that tried to go the next step, establishing a direct link 
between the Contra War in Central America and the distribution of drugs on the streets of the United States. In this story called The Dark Alliance, the San Jose Mercury News reported that a syndicate allied with Nicaragua's CIA-backed Contras delivered tons of cocaine to Los Angeles gangs during the 1980s, sparking a national media controversy and visible outrage among African Americans. To quiet this controversy among a key Democratic Party constituency, President Clinton sent his CIA director, John Deutsch, to South Central Los Angeles to stand up in front of 800 citizens from the hood uh, in a site of the most brutal of the gang warfare. It's an extraordinary experience. It's on YouTube. I suggest you watch it. Seeing John Deutsch, um, uh, <coughs> this rather patrician scientist, confronted by uh, members of the African-American community. Deutsch, in the midst of this meeting, denied any CIA complicity in drugs, but he did make a promise that as CIA director he would order a full investigation. In early 1998, the CIA released Volume 1 of its investigative report claiming that no CIA agents were personally involved in the traffic. Now, this was a, a charge that nobody had made, okay, but, okay. Uh, and then the national press chimed in and said, right, case closed, no case to answer, CIA exonerated, next story. Then, after the fig lights were turned off and the media had gone away in October of 1998, the CIA released Volume 2 of its investigative report, detailing extraordinarily detailed revelations. The CIA's close alliance with one of the Caribbean's major cocaine traffickers, a man named Alan Hyde, the godfather of the Bay Islands off Honduras. Starting on paragraph 913, the CIA report explained in 40 detailed paragraphs that followed how the CIA had protected Hyde from all criminal investigations from 1986 to 1992 in exchange for the use of his facilities to ship arms to the Contra rebels in Honduras. And although the CIA Inspector General posted this full report online on the CIA's website, there was no article in the national press about these revelations of a close alliance between the agency and the CIA's, uh, sorry, the Caribbean's top cocaine smuggler. This agency's real politic alliance with drug lords may or may not have increased the flow of narcotics into the United States. But these alliances certainly left a deep reservoir of suspicion among African Americans that deepened this country's racial divide. These patterns of CIA complicity with drug lords have reemerged in Afghanistan uh, to undercut the current U.S. war effort in that country. In each of the three wars the United States has fought in Afghanistan over the past 30 years, Opium has played an invisible yet critical role in shaping the outcome of these three conflicts. Now, <clears throat> during the Cold War decade of the 1980s, which we already discussed just a minute or two ago, the CIA provided guns and opium provided the finance for a guerrilla war that drove the Soviets out of Afghanistan. Let's turn now to a brief analysis of the other Afghan wars the U.S. has been involved in. First, the Civil War of the 1990s, and next, the ongoing counterinsurgency campaign were fighting against the Taliban. After the U.S. and the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan in 1992, ruthless local warlords combined guns and opium in a brutal struggle for power that continued to ravage the land, destroying orchards, herds, irrigation, and seed stocks. When Pakistan's surrogate warlord, a man named Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, the heroin trafficker I mentioned earlier, failed to take power after a brutal bombardment of Kabul that killed 50,000 people, Pakistan's inter-service intelligence armed a new force called the Taliban that captured Kabul in September 1996 and then fought the Northern Alliance for the next five years in the valley to the north of the capital. 
During this protracted civil war, rival factions used opium to finance the fighting, doubling the opium harvest from 2,000 tons in 1990 to a record 4,600 tons by 1999. Through this 20-fold jump in drug production during these two decades of warfare, Afghanistan was transformed from a diverse agricultural system into the world's first opium monocrop. Beneath the surface of this sudden change lurked a fragile ecological balance of field crops, orchard, and herding that could not recover unaided from decades of unprecedented devastation. Opium attrib opium's attributes sustained this ravaged economy and saved the rural population from mass starvation. Since opium poppy requires nine times more labor per hectare than the staple crop wheat, Opium offered seasonal employment for approximately a quarter of the country's labor force in 1999. Opium merchants could accumulate capital quickly from the traffic to give poppy farmers crop loans critical to the survival of many poor villages. In Afghanistan's climate, which is not really very good for anything agriculture, just happens to be absolutely ideal for opium. And the average yield per hectare was three to five times higher than the chief illicit rival, Burma. After taking power in 1996, the Taliban, recognizing these realities, encouraged a nationwide expansion of opium cultivation, sanctioned the introduction of heroin manufacture, and they doubled production to that record 4,600 tons in 1999, then equivalent to about 75% of the world's heroin supply. But in July 2000, the Taliban's Mullah Omar ordered a sudden ban on opium cultivation in a desperate bid for international recognition. And overnight, they cut the harvest by 94% to only 185 metric tons in 2001. And that was actually in the Northern Alliance Zone beyond the Taliban's control. But by then, Afghanistan had become an opium monocrop, dependent on poppy production for most of its taxes, export income, and employment. Thus, the Taliban's opium ban was a, an act of economic suicide that brought an already weakened society to the brink of collapse. When the U.S. invaded in October 2001, the Taliban regime was already a hollow shell that simply imploded at the burst of the first U.S. bombs. The outbreak of war with Washington in September 2001 ended the Taliban's opium ban. To defeat the Taliban, the CIA paid $70 million in bundles of $100 bills to mobilize the former warlords long active in the heroin trade to seize towns and cities across eastern Afghanistan, creating ideal conditions for the revival of the drug traffic. Within weeks after the Taliban's fall, Officials reported the, an outburst of poppy planting in two heroin heartlands, uh, uh, Nangahar in the east and the area around Kandahar in the south. After investing some $3 billion in Afghanistan's destruction during the Cold War, Washington and its allies now proved parsimonious in its reconstruction. Consequently, during the first year of U.S. occupation, Afghanistan's opium harvest surged extraordinarily from 185, 185 tons to 3,400 tons in one year. Amazing. Boom. Over the next five years, international opium donors, by my calculation, gave $8 billion to rebuild Afghanistan. But opium infused nearly twice that amount, an estimated $14 billion, directly into the rural economy without any deductions by Kabul's bloated bureaucracy. As opium production continued its relentless rise, Washington ignored the problem, outsourcing narcotics control to Great Britain, and police training to Germany. In 2007, the UN reported that the country's opium crop covered nearly 200,000 hectares, an area larger than all the cocoa fields in Latin America. It yielded 8,200 tons of opium, 
This represented 53%, half of Afghanistan's gross domestic product, and 93% of the world's heroin supply. Now, I say 53% of the country's gross domestic product, that means, well, uh, not much to us, it's a number. What does that mean? Okay. In the 1980s, at the peak of the cocaine cartels, when the Justice Palace was assaulted, when the Secretary assassins were roaming the country, when the land is ripped apart by the cocaine cartels, cocaine accounted for 3%, 1%, 2%, of Colombia's GDP, gross domestic product. Afghanistan's 53%. It's a, an opium monocrop, a drug monocrop, like none other that's ever existed in human history. Indeed, opium's influence is so pervasive that all Afghan political actors, rural warlords, the Taliban, and government officials have been tainted by this traffic, crippling the government and everyone else with corruption. The rural warlords who control the traffic are protected from prosecution by their alliance with the U.S. military or the CIA, notably the president's brother, Ahmed Walid Karzai, who was, until his recent assassination, local warlord, opium broker, and agency asset all rolled up into one. In January 2009, U.S. intelligence finally woke up to the problem and estimated that drug traffic provided the Taliban insurgents with nearly half a billion dollars a year. Clearly, said Defense Secretary Robert Gate, we have to go after the drug labs and the drug lords that provide support to the Taliban and other insurgents. Frustrated by the failure of conventional anti-drug methods, in August 2009, the Obama administration ordered the U.S. military to kill or capture 50 Taliban-connected drug lords named on a classified kill list. Now, since that record crop of 2007, opium production declined to 4,000 tons in 2010, still representing over 90% of world heroin supply and a major source of funds for the Taliban. Let's reflect very briefly. In this ancient land, sown with dragon's teeth, we are locked into an endless cycle of drugs and death. Every spring in these rugged mountains, the snows melt, the opium seeds sprout, and a fresh crop of Taliban fighters paid <clears throat> from the drug profits take to the field to be gunned down by lethal American fire. And the next year the snows melt again, fresh poppy shoots break through the soil, and a new crop of teenage Taliban fighters, needing jobs, takes to the field to fight against America. As the U.S. plans to withdraw from Afghanistan by 2014, we are likely to leave behind a corrupt government in Kabul, powerful drug lords who can control the countryside, and a resilient Taliban insurgency fueled by illicit opium an ambiguous legacy of bungled foreign policy and the CIA's long history of real politic alliances with drug lords. Thank you. And now I uh, introduce Professor Peter Del Scott, Professor Emeritus of English at the University of California in Berkeley, and uh, a very well-known poet besides one of the experts on parapolitics. He won the Lenin Prize, one of the highest prizes, if not the highest prize, in poetry in 2002. And uh, he's going strong. He, he, he had two readings over the weekend, and a lot of it was new stuff. Professor Scott. Thank you. And uh, thank you to Al McCoy, who's given you an excellent introduction to the seriousness of the problem. Um, I don't know why, Jerry, you said that you were almost apologetic for having talking about drugs at the beginning of this series. I think that's exactly 
where it should be at the very beginning. Because since World War II, America has become an empire. Its defense establishment has become an offense establishment. And the whole thesis of my most recent prose book, American War Machine, is that that terrible transformation of America from a democracy into an empire was achieved by the drug traffic. And I would like to supplement, before I start my written remarks, supplement the statistics that Al gave you about what happened in Afghanistan between 1980, 100 tons, negligible in the world market at the time, and zero really in the United States, and then one year or two years later, 60% of the drugs in America, and then skyrocketing from 100 tons in 1980 to 8,200 tons in 2006. So it's not just that America and the CIA have latched into something that is there, it has virtually created the global drug traffic that we are dealing with today. And I, I'll skip Colombia and <coughs> Latin America, but I will go back to the beginning of all this. In, uh, before the Golden Crescent, we had the Golden Triangle. And that's where this all began in Thailand and Burma. And uh, this was another area which, before we got there, had been marginal in the global market. And the estimates are maybe about 40 tons a year of opium before World War II. And then by the height of the Vietnam War, it was something like 1,200 tons a year. Now, those figures are not as big as what happened later in Afghanistan. But if you put them together, you see this sort of continuous growth, and the growth is always where the CIA is backing armies. Now, why would this happen? And, and there's a very poignant anecdote in Al McCoy's book. By the way, I, I, before I go any further, I want to praise Al McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin, as it is now called, because it is the Bible in this field, and it has served more than any other book to wake up at least some congressmen and some American politicians to the fact that we have a very major problem here. It's a problem domestically for what it's doing to our cities. It's a problem internationally for what it has done to create uh, mercenary armies wherever we have gone and uh, to establish networks which are deleterious all over the place. And in 1980, when Carter was still president, you had a man there called David Musto, who was charged to deal with the domestic aspect of the opium problem. And he became aware that Zbigniew Brzezinski and uh, the CIA were beginning to, uh, this is before the Soviets, uh, I, I said 1980, but it actually began before the Soviets. Uh, saying the Soviet invasion was Christmas 1979. Brzezinski and the CIA were active from 1978 and as Brzezinski later boasted, he was doing this to draw the Soviets in. He wanted it because he said, as, as when they did invade, he said to Carter, now we will give the Soviets their Vietnam War. 
In other words, a tragedy. It was a tragedy uh, for the Soviet Union and, and contributed to the breakup of the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, in giving the Soviet Union another Vietnam War, the legacy after that was to give us another Vietnam War too. And I can't believe how Brzezinski was willing to boast about this as late as 1998, but he did to a French newspaper. And Al McCoy's book has woken us up to this. But we have this problem of a continuous growth, and the growth is where the CIA is active. And so uh, we have seen this transformation of America into an empire. And I would just quote what Senator Fulbright said in a lecture uh, after his retirement, the price of empire is America's soul. And that is too high a price. And if we want to get America's soul back, we have to do something to dismantle the empire. And if we want to do something to dismantle all these bases all over the world and everything, we have to get far more American consciousness than there is at present about the central role of the drug traffic in building up this offensive capacity. and. Uh, and the, our need, therefore, to do something about it. Now, uh, I was going to... Al, I think you said some things today which are, go way beyond what you said in your book, and I'm not going to waste time now criticizing your book because <laughs> I, I think you've, uh, you've given us a good picture here. But I want to say this... Um, I want to start with a quote from not Al's book, but another of Al's books. Most well-developed heroin networks very quickly move towards a complementation of interests between the narcotic traffickers and corrupt elements of the enforcement agencies responsible for the suppression of the illicit drug trade. I think that's profoundly true. It's illustrated domestically with the corruption of the FBN, of Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was, became considerable towards the end, corruption of DEA, and uh, but above all, corruption of CIA. Because why is all this going on? And why is somebody like Musto not listened to, frozen out, uh, forbidden by the CIA to see the uh, secret documents that he was actually entitled to see in terms of his office? Well, I think this symbiosis dates back uh, to the British Empire. When, uh, the, the, back in 1838, opium was the number one commodity traded in the world, and that was because of a triangular trade in the British Empire, where opium essentially paid for the tea that went to England, tea, and the tea paid for the commodities went back to India, and the tax on tea uh, paid for the British Navy. Now, in my book, American War Machine, I describe how American involvement in the Southeast Asian opium narco-economy was preceded by the mysterious activities in Thailand of something called the World Commerce Corporation. This was a private group of Anglo-American millionaires, including Sir William Stevenson, Sir Victor Sassoon, Nelson Rockefeller, and former OSS chief William Donovan. I suspect but cannot prove that in this way the old drug connection which financed the British Empire and created the fortunes of what is now HSBC and the Sassoon family 
evolved into what I call clumsily today's global CIA drug connection. Just as Britain used profits from drugs to pay for the administration of Malaya and other colonies in the 19th century, so since 1950, the CIA has relied on drugs to finance proxy armies it could not otherwise pay for. And I was then going to criticize your book, but maybe, maybe you would agree with that statement now. I'm not sure. If you don't, I'll say some more. We're going to have a rebuttal. First thing I would say, in, in an indirect sense, Yes, we both would say in an indirect sense. It's not, it's not like the French where they actually ran the traffic and, and, and financed their covert operations. But it's no, but the CIA counted on the drugs to be there to pay for the army that it could not itself pay for. It amplifies the whole operation. So, uh, so well, if we, have a, we, if we have agreement on that, I won't waste too much time, but I do want to say that uh, uh, the CIA starting in... Operation Paper in 1950, that's what they called it, to support the Kuomintang Chinese Nationalist Drug Proxy Army in Burma, supplied the necessary arms, equipment, and planes to move arms in and also to move the drugs out, and it counted on the army's drug trafficking to raise the cash to support the army because they knew that Congress was not going to provide the cash to pay for a drug-growing army in Burma. It's as simple as that. So the CIA created a huge infrastructure for a succession of at least five successive drug proxy armies that were financed by involvement in drug trafficking. Of these, the KMT troops in Burma is the best documented we know it was armed and supported by two CIA proprietaries, Sea Supply Inc. and the airline CAT, which later became notorious as Air America. But the CIA, the KMT became irrelevant as a fighting force, but the CIA continued to build up Sea Supply and Air America to support two more drug proxy armies. First, a drug-financed paramilitary force called Paru in Thailand, and then, after Paru invaded Laos, uh, the Air America continued to support the Hmong army in Laos, headed by General Van Pao. Then, by 1975, the CIA pulled out of Laos, but we got the continuity, which I won't repeat, that you heard just starting five years later in Pakistan. Now, what about Al Yawalsu said, this is a quote from your book, should I, should I deal with it? The CIA's role in the heroin traffic was an inadvertent consequence of its Cold War tactics. I don't think it was an inadvertent consequence. I think it was a very deliberate, intentional measure to sort of create a capitalism in Southeast Asia that would be able to compete with the communism of Southeast of, of of mainland China. Uh, do you, would you still say it was an inadvertent consequence? It's a quite, I guess I would use the, the metaphor of turning a blind eye. Okay, the, these yes. Are, the, okay, the, the, these are covert warriors. They're military focused. They're instrumental. They're trying to mobilize uh, an effective force with uh, available resources. And if it's drugs, well, so be it. He said he would use the metaphor of turning a blind yeah. eye. 
I, I, I want to have a frank conversation here without giving you a false impression that I don't respect McCoy's work. McCoy's work is absolutely essential to what we're doing here. But I don't like them. I'm a poet, and I don't like bad metaphors, and I think that the blind eye, frankly, is a bad metaphor. <laughs> to begin with, when the CIA went back into Afghanistan in 19, uh, 2001, and this is entirely consistent with what you just told us, they, one of the things they did, they went with the British MI6 to Dijon, France, found an old tra drug trafficker who had retired, left, he was an Afghan, but he had left Afghanistan and reestablished himself in Burgundy and they told him to come back to uh, Afghanistan and be part of the Northern Alliance drive to get rid of the Taliban. That doesn't sound like turning a blind eye, that sounds like turning your good eye, if you have a good eye. And uh, another example of not turning a blind eye would be the CIA-approved operation, this is cocaine now, with General Ramon Guillén Davila, chief of a CIA-created anti-drug unit in Venezuela, who eventually was indicted in Miami for smuggling a ton of cocaine into the United States. This is not small potatoes here. According to the New York Times, the CIA, over the objections of the Drug Enforcement Administration, approved the shipment of at least one ton of pure cocaine to Miami International Airport. According to the Wall Street Journal, the total amount of drugs smuggled by General Guillén may have been more than 22 tons. But the United States never asked for Guillén's extradition from Venezuela to stand trial. And in 2007, when he was arrested in Venezuela for plotting to assassinate President Hugo Chavez, his indictment was still sealed in Miami, so nothing had ever been done about it. Meanwhile, CIA officer Mark McFarlane, whom the DEA had wished to indict, was never indicted at all. He merely resigned. And if we needed more, maybe we'll, I don't know if we'll have a debate about this or not, but if you want more examples, another would be the 1967 Opium War in Laos, which most of you probably haven't heard of, so I'll pass over it for now. So this raise, all of this raises the question, was who was ultimately behind the U.S. decision in 2001 to back Afghan drug traffickers of the Northern Alliance with the assistance of other known drug-tainted agencies, such as Pakistan's notorious intelligence service, the ISI. Was it a purely political decision, or was it perhaps because it was necessary to give another boost to the narcotics traffic? I want you to think about that. Let us ask first who was ultimately behind the U.S. decision in 1950 through Operation Paper to back the KMT drug proxy army in Burma. This was a U.S. government operation pushed hard for by the Office of Policy Coordination, OPC, only just been created in, in 1948, and it quickly became the covert operations arm of the CIA, but it was not yet that in 1950. Um, but I suspect the decision to uh, give arms to the army nearly ratified a supply operation that had begun much earlier, before OPC had even been created in June 1948. 
The key figure was an OSS veteran in Bangkok named Willis Byrd, and the question is, who backed Willis Byrd in his operations before OPC began? I believe it was probably the World Commerce Corporation, the same group who backed Willis Byrd's close friend and ally in Bangkok, Jim Thompson, the last OSS chief in wartime Bangkok. We know that Thompson's Thai Silk Company was funded by the World Co Commerce Corporation of Stevenson and Donovan, and there are reports also that the WCC was spending funds from the SS Gold recovered after World War II by the OSS in Operation Safe Haven, uh, the gold which the uh, SS had hidden in Austria. And it is now known that in December 1947, the National Security Council created a special procedures group that, among other things, laundered over 10 million in captured Axis funds to influence the Italian election of 1948. Uh, I believe that the other things besides the Italian election were uh, the build-up of a, a, some kind of force that would be able to stop communist expansion from mainland China into Southeast Asia, which they were very worried about at that time because most of the cities of Southeast Asia, right into Jakarta and Indonesia, have very substantial Chinese populations. Al McCoy writes about how a key figure behind the Willis Byrd operation was Paul Halliwell, an OSS veteran along with Willis Byrd from the OSS station in Kunming, China, who arranged with the head of OPC, Frank Wisner, to set up the CIA proprietary airline CAT. But Halliwell was not just an intelligence bureaucrat. Actually, at the time, he was an IAMI lawyer and banker and at some, time, at some point, the business and financial world of Paul Halliwell began to overlap very strikingly with the financial world of Meyer Lansky and the Mafia. So uh, that raises the question of who was Halliwell really working for? Was he working for the OPC and the CIA and the government, or was he working for the underworld? Uh, now, Halliwell's banking partner was a man called E.P. Barry, and he had been the post-war head of OSS Counterintelligence, or X2, in Vienna, which oversaw the recovery of the SS Gold in Operation Safe Haven. So that SS Gold seems to be coming in from two ends, from the World Commerce Corporation first, and from uh, from the Halliwell banking operation second, and I suspect that really Halliwell, Halliwell never became a rich man. He's not personally profiting about this, out of this. And when the CIA sent a man called Bill Lair, a rather admirable man, actually, I've read his oral history, and he, 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 I was very impressed with him. Uh, he was the head of this Paru unit, and he confesses that they financed their operations by drugs in Thailand. Uh, but he didn't become rich. He retired to Texas. I think they were working for this symbiosis that we talked about, between which I would redefine not as just corrupt elements in the enforcement agencies, but between the drug traffic and those people in high power who used them to 
expand American influence in places like Southeast Asia, where until then it had been notoriously weak. And where also, I have to mention at least, there were known to be considerable resources of offshore oil which American oil companies wanted to develop. So uh, the, the three big commodities trafficked in the world today are in order oil, number one, arms, number two, drugs, number three. I think I've done my 15 minutes, haven't I? Yes, I, I better stop. And I'll just say all those three commodities are interrelated because uh, we pay for our Saudi oil by shipping billions of arms to Saudi Arabia every year. And in all the cases, until maybe this one, the, the channels that take the CIA arms into the army are the same channels that bring the drugs out. So I'll stop there and uh, we'll get start to debate and then open to questions. Implicit in our two presentations are two overlapping but still significantly divergent viewpoints of how the, the global illicit uh, economy works. Uh, in my view, we're dealing with, in fact, uh, a commodity. And um, uh, since it's an illicit commodity, we don't have the benefit of political economists, economists, uh, narrative histories to explain it to us. And so we have to do it on our own. So we begin with the fact that, according to the UN, uh, survey in 1998 that opium, as Peter said quite accurately, constitutes about 4% of global trade, which means that the global, sorry, the, 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 the global drug traffic constitutes about 4% of global trade, which is larger than textiles, automobiles, or steel. When you consider that textiles are one of three human fundamentals for survival, food, shelter, and clothing, it's extraordinary that an illicit drug has a global trade larger than textiles, which, by the way, is a highly mobile commodity traditionally over the past, over millennia, traded long distances. So it's a, it's a fair comparison. This means we're dealing with a, a vast global commodity which spans continents, involves at base tens of millions of peasant producers. By the UN's estimation, 3,500,000 traffickers uh, that, that then move through nodal points. Now, where do, the, where do the covered agencies come in at this point? I like to think of them as, if you will, uh, people who create a covert operation that uh, doesn't create the global commodity and the global traffic, but can impact upon it. And what we see in Laos in the 1960s, in Afghanistan and uh, Central America in the 1980s, is the CIA creating a kind of covert battleground where the normal instruments of the nation state and the international community are removed from the area. And suddenly you have the creation of an informal kind of free port or free zone, an enforcement-free zone, in which traffickers uh, can actually operate with impunity. And in fact, that's all that anybody needs in order to become a very powerful criminal, an impunity from enforcement. And so the fact that, for example, the CIA got the Honduran authorities and the U.S. to back away from Allen Hyde from 1986 to 1992 at the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic in the United States is of critical importance. So what's the significance then of these episodic covert wars and the periodic creation of these enforcement-free zones? I think they're twofold. First of all, I think it allows the traffic to move to a higher level. That in each case, as Peter accurately pointed out, the Golden Triangle production went from about 40 tons before World War II to actually 600 tons by uh, 
1972, 600 out of about 1,200 tons worldwide. So it's about 50 to 60 percent of production. Again, in Afghanistan, it takes Afghanistan from 100 tons in 1979 uh, to 8,200 tons by 2006, 2007. So there's a massive, I mean, a massive expansion in not only the region's production, but consequently the global production and, by the way, the global networks, the cat's cradle of trafficking routes that tie peasant producers, traffickers, and consumers together on a global scale. Uh, and given the complexity of this, the vast scale of it, the huge number of people, the 3,500,000 full-time syndicate workers in the trafficking, it's beyond the capacity of any single agency, any economic regulator, if you will, to, to actually shape or fundamentally redirect the commodity traffic. But it can impact upon it as all economic regulation, whether by the Federal Reserve, uh, by the European Central Bank, or by the CIA. So I like to think of the CIA as, a, as a, somebody who intervenes in a market, changes the character of the traffic, redirects it, creates certain zones that takes it to new levels in scale and complexity. But I don't think that the, and, and by the way, manipulates the traffic very successfully in the service of the covert operation at the time transforming inconsequential minor peasant figures into powerful drug lords who can mobilize whole peoples in remote terrains and out of you know, the vastness of arid mountains in Central Asia or scattered Hmong populations across the roof of Southeast Asia, suddenly you've got a very powerful coherent guerrilla force where peasant boys will fight and die for your cause, which is not their cause. And then when the operation's over, it's dissolved, but the traffic has been expanded, and it's been taken in new directions, and, and operates in a new dimension. So it's a complex uh, analytical puzzle that we're dealing with. I privilege the bureaucratic impact and the nature of the commodity. Peter Dale Scott privileges what we might call the entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs in vice and violence who he thinks actually shape the traffic, I think, more than I do. Okay, that's my explanation. I don't claim to know what's going on at the heart of the narco economy, and I think Al doesn't know either. And uh, we're both groping here. I've just come back from Alaska, and you don't see, all you see of the mountains is like the bottom 200 feet, if you're lucky. And sometimes the cloud level is at sea level and you see nothing, and sometimes it lifts to about a thousand. And Al's book really lifted the cloud level in a way that will never go back down. We know so much more. But, uh, you know, you, you're saying it, the CIA impacted on the market, but really at the end of World War II, there was very little market. And the, uh, the, the reason I, I attach so much importance to those figures is that we see how war, in effect, created the market. Burma had always grown opium, but it, uh, it, it, was a, it, it only began to export, uh, really, when uh, opium became illegal in 1906. And uh, the, uh, they, they were exporting it to Thailand, and the British... You could say turned a blind eye, I think, here. They, uh, they outlawed the production of opium, but they continued to tax the Shan states at the same rate as they had before. In other words, the Shan states had to go on exporting the opium in order to be able to pay the taxes. So that meant the British were clean, 
but the, uh, they, they were counting on the opium to support the colony of Burma indirectly. There was virtually no market global trade in opium, and I think it could have stayed that way. The mafia was destroyed in Italy, and Al Bocoy's book shows how the, the, we actually imported American mafia into Italy to help uh, the Italian right uh, fight communism in first Sicily and then uh, mainland Italy. And uh, so I don't think we were so much impact. You know, your statistics are very compelling when you're talking about these millions of peasants, but I think you're reaching to the, 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 the current state of the market. There weren't millions of peasants when this began. There was a far smaller number. And I think, you know, obviously there are many factors that go into this, but I think I more than you attach a lot of importance to key decisions made by very small people in London and Washington and France, uh, which then creates a situation which gets beyond anyone's control. And I'm sort of sorry that uh, one of uh, Jerry's slides at the beginning, which had all those people from Wall Street who went to, uh, to Washington at the very top of the list was Frank Wisner, and uh, he arrived with the title of uh, Office for uh, Central European Activities or something. He was, in fact, heading up a covert operations arm, which, like himself, the top people were giving up big salaries in, in New York to come down to much smaller salaries. Mrs. Wisner said these were people so rich they could afford to work for Washington, meaning that it, the salary wasn't why they were coming. I think they were very invested in thinking geopolitically about communism versus capitalism and thinking that if we're not careful, we're going to lose all of Asia to communism. What ally do we have there? Well, we have the, we have the capitalists. They have the, K, the KMT, the Kuomintang, the Chinese nationalists, were not just an army in Burma. They were a bunch of secret societies in every city in Southeast Asia. And traditionally, they had supported themselves by the local, they were triads that supported themselves through opium. And now they weren't going to get opium anymore from Yunnan because the Chinese communists had taken Yunnan. And I think they consciously decided to get another source of KMT opium to beef up the Kuomintang in Taiwan and in Southeast Asia. And uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong became very big, huge in this trade, but they hadn't been. Taiwan never was until these decisions were made, I think, in in, in Washington, now, rather than go on and on about this, I think I should let you come back and respond to that. Hold up, I think we're done the floor. Right. Yeah, but I, think that they, I think that that's a, you know, an articulate statement of two analytical positions there. You can come here. Sure. I, I think we should open the questions. I don't want to belabor the point, but I think that's a... Peter has given us an articulate statement, and I hope well, for mine uh, was at least clear, of two very different approaches towards analyzing the vastness of this global vice economy. That, uh, uh, and it's, it's not akin to debates that conventional 
economic historians have assessing markets versus the impact of entrepreneurships, uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in shaping and creating markets. So we're, we're actually engaged in what I think is a, a very interesting kind of debate. Uh, unfortunately, it's a debate that's all too often, that, that's all too uncommonly held. Uh, very, you know, there's very little discussion of this vast sector of the economy and of the global political economy. But I, I think we should open to the floor and maybe come back to some, to some moments. question, I think, is about Myanmar. No, I do not think the CIA is supporting uh, the, the junta in Myanmar, but in an odd way, the DEA became involved with Myanmar because there's so much opium. It's almost gone now, but for a while it was still being grown in the Shan states, and I guess some of it will always be grown. And the DEA, either naively or very cynically, uh, gave money to the uh, to the central government in what we now, well, it's moved again, Yangon it was then, Rangoon, uh, to uh, eradicate uh, opium production. What that meant in practice was to fight a guerrilla war or a counter-guerrilla war against the Karens, against the Kachins, against all of the Shans, all of these people who perhaps should not really be part of Burma uh, they're different from the Burmese. They were oppressed by the Burmese. Uh, and uh, eventually it, was, it became kind of scandalous that this was we were helping the junta enforce itself in the areas where it was least popular. So that you can say about the DEA, but that really was, I think, a kind of accidental thing. I, I spent three years in Thailand, and I met an awful lot of people who had casually uh, smoked opium, the way people smoke pot in this country. And I think it's possible for it to be a social drug without great consequences. It is obviously one with much greater risks of creating a disastrous addiction. Uh, I personally, and now may have a different point, I think it's quite urgent to legalize marijuana as a first step, not for medical use, just legalize it and let people grow their own and you will cut the heart out of the narco economy in Mexico, and maybe the death rate in Mexico will drop radically from what it is, thousands of people a year now, down to almost nothing when it's no longer profitable 
to have because they don't grow cocaine. They grow marijuana and have almost taken over the government with the profits from marijuana. So if we want to clean things up in Mexico, let's legalize marijuana, let everyone grow it in their backyard. <laughs> Just a very quick uh, answer about the pharmacology. The, the, key, the key factor of opium from a political economy perspective is that through the endorphin receptors in the human brain, um, every human being is a, a natural opiate addict. And that means that the global market for opium is, is potentially limitless. In 1909, the world had the first, if you will, the first act of global drug diplomacy at the Shanghai Opium Conference. And they those participating did a survey of production in, in, in the, uh, the members of the conference. And uh, from that, we have a record that in 1909, uh, world opium production was 41,000 tons. Right? Today, we're at about 5,000 tons. Okay? So it went from, as a result of the global drug suppression that started uh, f uh, really in 1925, it dropped down to about 1,200 tons by 1972, and it's built upward. Uh, it reached a peak of about 9,000 tons. Globally, it's now down to about five or 6,000 tons. So clearly, even now with the global proliferation of, of opium, we're but a fraction of where we were a century ago. So the, the market is infinitely expandable. Peter, I just no. wanted to say I'm glad that you pointed out uh, a fact that is easily overlooked is that the United States is the consumer of these drugs. The only one. Par excellence. I mean, probably the biggest consumer. And so it, it's not, you know, what the Brazilians say of Mexico, it's poor Mexico so far from Jesus and so close to the United States. And uh, so that's something we have to keep in mind as far as what responsibility we have for what's going on. Just on that point very quickly, there once was a time during the Vietnam War in which uh, actually from really uh, post-World War II with the start of the French Connection, the uh, Turkish opium converted to heroin in Marseille shipped to the United States, and then the shift of the market to Southeast Asia. From really 1948 to about 1980, the United States was the premier consumer of illicit heroin. Uh, from the 1980s onward, the boom in Burma's production and the simultaneous boom in in uh, production in Pakistan and Afghanistan, there's been a globalization. And, uh, you know, we're actually now a relatively minor consumer compared to that vast swath of the Eurasian landmass stretching from Ireland to Vladivostok in Russia. And so the, the, the commodity has globalized its market really enormously. Just very quickly, I think probably the chief uh, country affected by heroin now is Russia. Uh, where they have uh, 40,000 people die every year. And more acutely, they, because they have significant Muslim populations inside Russia, not just in Chechnya and the Caucasus, but right up in the areas crossing the Trans-Siberian Railway. And those, the Russia, as the Russians see it, these are being financed. These, uh, there, there are... Uh, insurrectionary movements that are being financed by drugs and the drugs are coming from Afghanistan and they feel that they, they talk about being invaded by drugs and some 
Russian generals have pointed uh, very narrowly at the United States. And I don't think the Russians are handling it ideally because they want America to uh, stamp out, uh, eradicate opium in the, in the field. And I think the United States is right to reject that way of dealing with it. But I think uh, that I would love to see Russia and America, there has been some collaboration between the two countries. I would love to see a great deal more because the problem in, of heroin production in Afghanistan is affecting both countries and it is affecting Russia much more. I want to thank you both for how you've contributed to my education over the years on this subject. Uh, I understand uh, Al's argument and his commodity argument, and what you just pointed out about Russia is a perfect illustration of how, in a certain sense, Al's argument is correct. Uh, the CIA didn't create the uh, addiction of Russians <laughs> to heroin, obviously. Uh, but in, in the specific cases that we've analyzed, I don't understand uh, Al, how you can argue your case. I mean, you have, uh, you know, these, you, both of you have given us these statistics in, uh, in Indochina and uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the uh, crack epidemic in the United States with the Congress. And we have these examples where we have these small levels of production that are used locally. Uh, the CIA comes in, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the market explodes, uh, and uh, which means it brings a whole new consumer world through the expanded net network. It seems to me perfectly obvious that in these cases we've analyzed, uh, but not necessarily in the whole global arena, you know, but in these specific cases that we've analyzed because we're looking at U.S. foreign policy and how it happened seems to me perfectly obvious in these cases that Peter's argument is correct, that this is not incidental, it's not something that's backed into, it's right in the core of, of how all this stuff works. And it's not incidental or impacting on a market, it's creating a market. It's right at the heart of everything that's happening. And in these specific cases, I don't understand how you can Maybe on the global level you, you have a point, but in these specific cases I don't see how your argument holds up vis-a-vis -vis Peter's argument. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. The, I guess I would respond to this, and I would re uh, this is to repeat some, some, a bit of what I said earlier. Uh, that within the, the long-term trajectory of the rise and decline of global production, both gross uh, statistics of production and also the location of production, the covert wars, and I've argued this, play a, a, an important role because they create uh, these enforcement-free zones where you can either have, in the case of Central America, uh, enforcement-free trafficking linking Colombia and the Andes with the United States uh, in a critical way station without any threat of arrest, uh, uh, and indeed quite the opposite. Uh, the, the, both the, the international and the national enforcement agencies back away 
right? And they allow these entrepreneurs to operate with absolute freedom. In the case of Afghanistan, it's even larger. It's not just the traffic, but it's actually the production as well. And the case of the illicit market, which in fact is illicit because of suppression, okay, the removal of suppression creates, if you will, a market opening that allows for a massive expansion in the scale of production, the quality of production, the number of peasant producers, the uh, the, uh, the range of entrepreneurs, uh, the export to global markets where, because of the nature of the human mind, it doesn't take much to expand uh, demand. Uh, so my way of thinking, you know, these covert wars do play a critical role in the history of the traffic by being, if you will, watershed moments where the scale of production, the scope of its market, uh, and the actors involved in the traffic can expand significantly, all right? But, uh, but again, given the scale and complexity of the global traffic, I tend to minimize the, my sense of the, the influence that individual entrepreneurs, whether the traffickers themselves, no matter how powerful these drug lords might be, or the, uh, the intelligence agencies, local and international, CIA, Pakistani, uh, that, that protect the traffickers and allow them to operate. Al, um, I'd like to ask you a question because I trust your statistics more than I trust my own. Um, you gave the, the uh, figures for 1925, I think, in 1972. What was the scale of the global market in opium between, say, 1945 and 1948? Uh, we actually don't have much statistics because uh, the International Opium Commission, which was a function of the League of Nations uh, was effectively not operating and the UN uh, Drug Commission wasn't really fully going. So the whole elaborate reporting that we have because of the League of Nations on the interwar period was basically in abeyance. But from what we know, uh, given the preponderance of the, given the, the, the preponderant role of the U.S. as a consumer, we know that the drug consumption in the United States went way down and the, the traffic became essentially localized between a very marginal production in Mexico, exported to the United States, a very substandard product with an extremely limited market. It fell to almost, to, you know, to very, very low levels. Right? Uh, but then very quickly, it expanded enormously. And the question is, and it's, it's a question, whether it expanded quickly because of human nature needing its opium or whether it expanded very quickly because intelligence agencies, the British, the French, and the American, used it to uh, create a kind of capitalist environment in a part of the world they thought would go communist. Well, again, I don't want. Uh, my own feeling is that both is true. Although, again, I, I, I haven't studied that aspect of the intelligence agencies the way you have. My basic approach would make me skeptical about the design. I, I tend to take it, I tend to view it as instrumental in covert operations rather than systemic in trying to manage an expanding empire. But that's just my analytical perspective. Thanks. Um, I have a couple of scattershot comments. Um, but I hope before we end tonight that there will be an attempt to sort of summarize what the overarching uh, if there's a way to summarize what is the overarching significance of this topic uh, 
for you, potentially for us. Why should we care? Um, what's important here? And I, 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 I'm a little bit lost in the sort of what was referred to as the Byzantine, somewhat Byzantine character of some of the discussion. And I, I would like to get back to, okay, what are the central points here? But before getting into that, just before inviting you to get into that, just a couple of comments. Um, my uncle graduated from the Fletcher School of International Law and Diplomacy and became a, a career foreign service officer and he was for a time deputy chief of mission in the, in the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan. Um, so it's sort of fitting to be part of the discussion even though he was there before the period that you're talking about. Um, it's also interesting that Carl Oglesby, who was brought up a week ago Sunday, was in the hospital being given morphine for his pain. So I'm not against OB8s and I hope nobody else here is. Um, Chuck Hogan was mentioned, Charles, Chuck to his friends, Kogan. Kogan has been at, at Harvard since he segued in his career uh, out of the CIA. Um, uh, when 9-11 happened, he adamantly said on the occasions when there was public discussion of, 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 of among other things, the possibility that there was blowback uh, involved in what had happened uh, at, on 9-11, he said very adamantly and aggressively on two occasions, God said, we didn't know Osama bin Laden, which I thought was quite interesting and striking. Um, a friend of mine, Crosby Forbes, uh, a relative of John Forbes Carey, uh, not the Malcolm Forbes of Forbes magazine, but the other Forbes family, uh, the, For the Forbes family of Cuddyhunk Islands off Cape Cod, um, the Forbes of Captain Forbes, who was a key figure in the opium trade, in the Ch what's called the China trade, but the other half of which was the opium trade. And Crosby, an eccentric friend, lived in Cambridge, Crosby used to say to me, well, you know how the Forbes family got wealthy, don't you? Opium. So it's ironic that John Forbes Carey ends up playing the role that he ended up playing. Um, the mention was made of Jim Thompson. I think you're mistaken. I don't think Jim Thompson. I don't think it was Jim Thompson. It was... The first name was different. When that Thompson died and there was an obituary for him in the New York Times, and he had been with the CIA, his brother was Jim Thompson, and his brother Jim Thompson ran the Neiman Fellows Program at Harvard for many, many years, and I remember hearing him at a career event it urge everybody to go um, sign up for uh, possible careers in the CIA. So there were two, there were brothers. There was a Jim Thompson who ran the Neiman program at Harvard for many years, and there was his brother who was the CIA OSS guy in Southeast Asia. I don't remember his first name, but maybe... Can I just respond to that? I, I lived in Thailand, and I've gone to the Jim Thompson house in Bangkok. Everybody in Thailand remembers him as Jim Thompson. I have him in my book as Jim Thompson. It was never proven he was CIA, actually, but the Thai Silk Company got all its silk from the northeastern Isan area of Thailand, where they were most worried about the insurrection. And he certainly had a, he had the reputation in, uh, in uh, Bangkok of being CIA, and then he mysteriously disappeared. Well, people do mis disappear, uh, and his sister started to investigate his disappearance, and then right here in the United States, she was murdered, and there was no ambiguity about that. So you began to feel there was, in fact, something very heavy going on there. It doesn't prove anything, but it, uh, 
It's it, but yes, his name okay. was Jim Thompson. Do you happen to know if it was the Jim Thompson who subsequently turned up as the head of the Neiman Foundation? I think, I think I'm going to have to end different. They were brothers. I think you guys could try to settle okay. this outside anyway, afterwards. No, uh, but then returning to the... To the but I like your point about trying to fr frame it. Right. Uh, could I say something about opiates? Yes. There, there is, opium for centuries was regarded as, me as medicine, a very great asset. And today, in many parts of the world where they don't have other medicines, it's a very helpful painkiller for, for simple people. The Songlis plan for Afghanistan, which I think is excellent, but is very frowned on for some reason in Washington, is all that opium is there in uh, Afghanistan, buy it. You could buy it for much less than you're paying for all these other crazy programs, and then give it, people say, well, there's no market for it. Of course there's a market for it. Through most of the third world, they don't have proper... Uh, opiates in the hospitals, and they've done the math on this, they've done the economics, they've figured out how it could go there. This is very popular in Europe, and it's, when it's mentioned in America at all, it's, it's to, in order to attack it. And uh, I, I think that's another sign that, uh, that drugs are somehow a little bit more structural in the American empire than people are willing to acknowledge. To begin the process of, you know, what does this all mean in terms of public policy and what are the implications of what we've been talking about for um, the life of ordinary Americans dealing with uh, elections, I think there are, first of all, some, some immediate issues that arise. Uh, from the analysis of the complexity of the global uh, commodity trade, I would have to make a conclusion, I've made this argument in print, that the drug war, the attempt to suppress the drugs through coercion by the United States and the United Nations, is in fact counterproductive. And I've made the argument that in fact, in a complex global commodity system, the regional or local suppression of drugs uh, serves actually to stimulate the market. That one of the things that, I mean, think about it, uh, if you have a successful suppression operation that removes uh, supply, demand remains constant, price goes up. I mean, we all recall that from Economics 101. And so what happens in the next crop cycle when any farmer is faced with a higher price for his or her commodity? They plant more. Moreover, the peasant producers around the globe, up and down the Andes and across Afghanistan, uh, need crop loans. Just like every farmer goes to the bank, well, these peasant farmers go to the local traffickers for their crop loan. So when you defoliate uh, Putumayo or uh, in Bolivia or wherever the suppression operation is taking place, that peasant farmer has got to deliver, first of all, this year's loan, and then to stay alive, he's got to get next year's loan. So he's got to double his production. All right, so the net result of suppression is in fact to stimulate production and then expand demand. So I think that there's a need for recognition that the, the drug war isn't working. Second uh, media policy takeaway uh, is that given the, the commodity dynamic of the traffic, uh, the whole attempt to deal with, uh, with demand through mass incarceration, uh, which has raised the U.S. prison population from 100 uh, prisoners per 100,000 people in 1980 when Reagan expanded the drug war from Nixon's foreign drug war into a domestic drug war, we're now well over 700 prisoners per 100,000. 
In the state of California, I believe it's correct to say that, I know it is, California now spends more on prisons, more on incarceration, than it does on higher education. And this is, you know, uh, it turns out that we're not a society of infinite wealth, and we have to make choices about what we do with our social welfare dollar. Well, incarceration is a form of social welfare, as is higher education. So I would say that, again, what Cal the California experiment, well, I think it's Proposition 30, uh, mandatory treatment for nonviolent first-time convicted drug offenders is far more effective in terms of the individual and far more uh, inexpensive in terms of social policy. So we, begin to, we need to begin to, to um, deconstruct, to take apart our sort of national drug prison uh, complex and, and begin the, at least the decriminalization uh, of, uh, of, of drug possession and individual drug use. Those are two immediate policy changes that would actually have enormous impact on a global and a domestic level. I just have one question, which is, um, you've both been talking about the CIA kind of pushing drugs uh, or being involved in, in uh, drug trade as, as an arm of um, American empire. Um, and I was just wondering if you could reflect on the ways that, especially in the Andes, um, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, has also kind of been an arm of American influence. And, and a sort of way of American infiltration into those countries. Um, is there a connection there, or are, are two parts of the United States government actually just kind of working across purposes against each other, or what's, what's, what's the relation? Cocaine politics, yeah. But, uh, it has to do it country by country a bit. I mean, I think in Bolivia, for example, we go to a country where chewing coca has been the way the Indians survive at high altitudes for thousands of years, and we tell them they can't do it anymore. Uh, this, of course, has led to a complete uh, convulsion in Bolivia, and now Bolivia has quite a radical government as a result of an absolutely insane policy coming from the United States. Uh, in Colombia, uh, that's, that's the country where we declared a war on drugs and I remember in 1990, I said, if we really go through this and carry out this war on drugs, I guarantee that drug production will go up. And I said that in 1990, and in 10 years, the uh, drug production, the cocaine production in Colombia had trebled, because you have a whole lot of airplanes flying in, you have people on the ground, you have anti-narcotics forces, some of whom were American and got arrested for taking cocaine back to America. It was absolutely predictable. The main CIA involvement in Colombia has been with, it, it really was, we got serious about this when they found a, an oil field and they had a pipeline for the oil field and they wanted to protect the, the pipeline. That's why I wrote a book called Drugs, Oil, and War, uh, that I think that the war on drugs was a screen for stepping up counterinsurgency to protect the, the pipelines. And uh, you, we've had some very powerful revelations quite recently, and in fact, I've, I've been out of touch with the newspapers, some in just in the last two or three weeks, I think. But basically, you had, uh, you had the FARC, and you, you had two or three uh, revolutionary forces on the left, and the uh, big landlords, who are the heart of the social problem of Colombia, 
uh, were hiring mercenaries on the right, and the mercenaries were drug-supported. And unfortunately, the CIA came in, and they were always trying to keep it clean and keep the drugs out of it, but in fact, they were they, they became allied with the uh, counter-revolutionary forces who were the OAC, Castaño, and people. They were drug traffickers, and we were working with them against the FARC. And now, something else that's happened over the years, the FARC itself has come to be supporting itself by drugs. So that it, it, I'm not sure it really is the revolutionary movement that it was when it began. I think it's become another drug uh, tra trafficking force. So in other words, in Colombia, it's very, very complicated. But I think it, there's a simple, again, I'd say the origins are simple. Castro came to power in Cuba. Kennedy was very worried. He said, oh, I won't invade Cuba, but I'll keep Castro from getting to South America. What was the country he was most worried about? Colombia, because it was right there to the south. So the Americans go in and start a counter-insurgency, which forces a lot of labor or, uh, organizers, ordinary people, to become revolutionaries because they're being persecuted by the counter-revolutionary thing. So I blame American stupidity for helping to create the revolutionary movements that we're dealing with in Colombia. Uh, the, I think uh, Professor McCoy raised an issue that's very important uh, that is connected to bringing the, the drugs home, essentially, and the U.S. being a big consumer of drugs. The uh, point was raised about crack cocaine and the article in the San Jose Mercury. It is very useful, I think, for the U.S. government to continue to have drugs be illicit. It's very useful not just to have a lot of prisons and build a prison economy, but it keeps people in jail. And it keeps people in jail who might be out there in the streets protesting their oppression. We know that most of the people in jail because of drug offenses are African Americans. They're poor people. There are people who have no alternatives in this society, and the alternatives get fewer and fewer as now we become accustomed to 9% unemployment, 20% unemployment in the cities where minorities live. The drug wars are an excuse to keep the people oppressed, and unfortunately, there isn't much resistance to that. Uh, I, I live in California. And uh, I noticed that, was very aware that in the 1970s and the 19, early 1980s, uh, African-American communities were beginning, just beginning to become very organized. They, uh, and uh, organized for a radical change. You had the Black Panthers, but you had all kinds of other people, nonviolent, but, but very intent on organizing. I, told, I talked to an, an African-American organizer, and he said, in one year, I went down, I, I forget the years, but it was early 80s, let's say it was 82, he went down, he had a whole network of organizers, and he went back in a year, or maybe it was two years, they were all now drug dealers. Uh, it absolutely depoliticized the situation, 
and created a narcotized economy and a narcotized community. And of course, it's uh, this this has created a, a situation where. Uh, a lot of African-American leaders share uh, with people like me concern about uh, the drug situation in this country, but it's put them into a situation they want they want law enforcement, unfortunately. I, I, they, the, the wonderful black minister who delivered the final uh, um, invocation at the inauguration of uh, Obama which was, for me, the inaugural was a very, very moving ceremony, and the final invocation was very moving. I have sat next to that man at an anti-drug conference, but we were agreeing that we disagreed about where to go because he wanted enforcement and I wanted legalization. That was the last thing he wanted. So it is, again, served to... Uh, break up potential uh, alliances that would have challenged the status quo and to narcotize whole communities and, as you say, to put a great number of their leaders in jail. And, uh, you know, it's one more thing about California. We're nearly bankrupt because we are not taxing our number one agricultural product, which is marijuana. <laughs> uh, one last question. This is on behalf of my 11-year-old son, with whom I had a debate about this this afternoon. Um, a lot of what uh, you have discussed, which I'm very grateful for uh, the information, is really still a history lesson. And, and what a lot of us would like to know, especially my son, is uh, what is the current status of the uh, relationship between the U.S. Uh, intelligence services and the overt government as well as the covert government with the drug trade. What's going on right now? That, that's a, that's a, a complex and almost a knowable question. My gut instinct is that, uh, uh, how can I put it, the uh, regional and local power holders across Afghanistan are no longer, uh, uh, if you will, in a situation of a divided society because of the Karzai government um, and the presence of an insurgency in that government that brokers are simultaneously the lowest agents of the you know, local representatives of the government. They have ties to Kabul. Uh, they mobilize militia. Uh, they provide intelligence. They mobilize militia for, uh, for coalition forces. They provide intelligence for the CIA. Uh, they also are, in many cases, influential drug brokers which means that they're dealing with the peasants and the traffickers, and they're uh, presiding over a traffic which is sustaining the Taliban. So in effect, the, the situation has gotten enormously murky. Uh, whereas, let's say, back in 2001, it was a northern alliance, and the, the former warlords were across the border in Pakistan. They were the traffickers uh, that we were allied with. The Taliban, after the prohibition, of 2001 wasn't in the traffic anymore. So there was a clear dividing line, ephemeral, but a clear one. That's gotten very murky. And so right now we have a situation where the CIA and the U.S. military are dealing with these local power brokers who have these multiple functions, uh, and they deal with them because they have to, and they don't pursue them very rigorously for their traffic. So it's gotten, it's gotten very murky. Uh, uh, 
it represents a kind of institutionalization of the traffic within this curious government we have in Afghanistan where still, apart from the war effort itself, as far as I can tell, the largest single commodity that that society produces, that sustains that society, is opiates. Okay, so it's, 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 a, it's gotten very murky. It's gotten really inbuilt into the structure. All right? And then the, the export is enormous right across you know, the vast sprawl from Ireland all the way to Vladivostok, as I said, with all these multi-ethnic trafficking groups. Uh, and uh, some of them we played with. For example, the traffic when it routed used to scamper along the, the Adriatic coast. Um, that was the coastal route. It would go inland through Kosovo. Okay, uh, I recall attending a drug conference in Switzerland in 2000, uh, and there were these tough guys with uh, blocks on their hip, and they were the, the cantonal drug police. And for these guys, ethnic profiling wasn't a question. Kosovars were heroin, heroin was Kosovars. And what they said to me is, look, the uh, Kosovo Liberation Army, which is now the government, uh, they're in diaspora. These guys, you know, the traffic comes from Kosovo, uh, these guys sell, they distribute in the canton all across Switzerland, all across Europe, they buy guns with the profits, ship it back, and uh, we have to pick up the pieces. Now that was a very close U.S. ally. We backed the Kosovo Liberation Army. Many of the people that we put into power were a part of that. In other words, it's gotten very murky. The, the, the blurry, clear lines between criminal, legitimate government officer, trafficker has gotten very murky and very blurred in, as the traffic has kind of gotten institutionalized in, in the complex post-Cold War politics uh, of the Eurasian landmass. That's a, it is I'm murky. Pass that on to your 11-year-old son. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with anything that Al said, but I am going to try and see if there isn't something simple that we can make out of it. And I think that the, the, I think that although all you hear about in the U.S. press is that the Taliban is supporting itself by drugs, the Taliban is supporting itself by drugs, they are. But how much of the drug traffic do they control in Afghanistan? And the highest estimate is about 12%. And the rest of it is going to all of these murky arrangements for this very disorganized uh, government that's called Kabul. And the mayor of Kabul, who's supposed to be the, I mean, he's not literally the mayor, but Karzai is called the mayor of Kabul because his writ doesn't extend very far uh, outside the city. Historically, that's how pa Afghanistan has been. When you had a peaceful time, it was when the, the ruler knew that he should stay with, around his palace and let the local lords do what they're doing. And you've got something like 80% of his establishment in the rest of the country consists of local warlords, including until recently his brother in the south, and a whole lot of people who are drug lords and CIA assets that we're not t attacking when we talk about dealing with things. It's, it's U.S. policy only to attack the drug dealers that are involved with the Taliban, which means dealing with a tiny percentage. So I think this is quite simple. It's like Laos in the last years. It's like uh, like, like Vietnam when Nguyen Cao Ki was Thieu uh, and Ki were the big dogs in Vietnam. It was a drug-ridden economy, 
and it was totally corrupt, and the only way you could end the corruption was for America to get out of Vietnam. I think we have a situation very like that now in Afghanistan. It is being totally corrupted by drugs, and the only way to end the corruption will be to get out of Afghanistan. I think that's simple. 12% for the Taliban, 78% supporting Karzai, and we are responsible for maintaining this corrupted situation. Not to mention that the uh, Pakistani intelligence, uh, which has been mentioned several times, the ISI, yeah. has been repeatedly uh, connected. At least the, a third of their income is comes from. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the convoys that uh, take supplies into Afghanistan from Pakistan come back with heroin. And they're under the control of the ISI, which has the uh, shipping business. It seems to me that there's something missing in this discussion, regardless of whether uh, uh, the CIA has a, a, different, a deliberate policy of promoting or just turning a blind eye. The thing that I think is missing is what happened to honesty and transparency in government? Uh, we have a United States government that uh, is lying and cheating uh, and holding back information and behaving criminally. Uh, isn't that really the problem? Uh, you know, if, if this weren't the case, then the people could actually be, become uh, sufficiently informed to uh, change whatever policy it is. Not you reduced it to a much more complicated problem. <laughs> well, my answer to that would first of all be it's Chinatown, Jake, uh, yeah. if you catch the literary or the filmic reference. Um, in this society where, in fact, because of this, the, the comparative strength of bureaucratic institutions uh, and the, you know, this, the, still the, the, the insulation of government on a comparative scale from influence, we just still do have the capacity to make uh, public policy choices and to influence those choices. And the immediate ones we have at hand are policies towards incarceration and in towards uh, whether or not we decide to criminalize or decriminalize drugs. And we start from those two bases, and we move piecemeal, because it is a very complex global traffic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and you don't simply, uh, if you will, uh, launch a, a sudden bold strike in the anticipation of a radical and sudden reform, because there are oftentimes very serious unintended consequences of tinkering with such a complex system. So move two steps forward, and then take stock and move forward again. But we need to launch ourselves on a trajectory of reform of this whole complex nexus. That's my suggestion. I think you, when we're talking about where did honesty go, uh, it's no secret. It's, it's absolutely no secret now that we're dealing with a political system that is being corrupted by money, uh, all kinds of money. And uh, perhaps what is not sufficiently appreciated is that ever since the 1950s, drug money has been coming into Congress in a big way under different names. It was called the, the China Lobby in the 50s. Then you had, the, it didn't really have a name, but the Thai government was systematically funneling money to both political parties through the same Paul Helliwell who helped set up the uh, support system for the drug armies in Thailand. 
And then you had a man called Adnan Khashoggi, who has been recently identified as linked to the drug traffic, once called the richest man in the world. They say he once uh, left a suitcase with a million dollars in Richard Nixon's uh, summer residence at San Clemente and forgot to leave with it. Uh, you had BCCI, which was ex investigated by a uh, Senate committee, and a report showed the amount of money. The BCCI was pouring money into our political system, and uh, we've had money poured in by the Saudis and the Pakistanis. Uh, it's going to be very difficult. I, I, I don't have an answer, really, except that sometimes things have to get worse in order to get better. Well, they've been doing that for some time. So anyway, thanks for uh, coming and bearing with us. appreciated listening to Peter Dale Scott and Alfred McCoy debate these issues. I think that this debate complements the long-delayed release of Peter's 1970 article on the CIA and the Southeast Asian heroin traffic. To me, the key points are in the new introduction of the article, and they're also mentioned in the debate. Before the CIA was even created, spies and capitalist oligarchs used the World Commerce Corporation to establish an opium-trafficking anti-communist force in Southeast Asia. This is one of those key hidden precursors that illuminate subsequent history. In this debate, I must come down on the side of Scott. I'd say that the CIA and all its crimes are ultimately symptomatic of the fact that it is capitalism's invisible army. It took pre-existing, historically nefarious, imperialist, politico-economic forces and brought them fully into the American state with the protection of the Almighty. Such is emblematic of the decline of U.S. democracy and the rise of world history's most powerful empire, an empire that cannot be disentangled from the sordid history of capitalism. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. I'd also like to express my gratitude for Casey Moore's episode artwork. Like Alfred McCoy and Peter Dale Scott, let us strive to mind the darkness.